It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Watching Mates. I'm this week's host, Michael Levito, and I'm joined by the one and the only, Lars Emerson. That's me. What's up, everyone? You already know who we are, so we don't really introduce ourselves again, but we will reintroduce the idea of this podcast. This is our second episode where we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president, because it'd be hard to do it for a lot of the pre-war presidents, frankly. And basically what we each do is I pick a movie, Lars picks a movie, we discuss how it relates to the chief executive in question. This episode, we're going to be talking about our 34th president, Dwight David Eisenhower. Now, who was Dwight D. Eisenhower, you may ask? Well, before becoming president, Eisenhower was, of course, a general, serving as Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, and quickly becoming a national hero, because we, of course, won World War II. He was actually also the military governor of Germany, fun fact. And he was so popular, actually, this is a very fun fact, that he was courted by both both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to run for president. In fact, he was so popular that Harry S. Truman, who we discussed in our last episode, allegedly offered to serve as Eisenhower's running mate on a Democratic ticket in 1948 if Douglas MacArthur got the Republican nomination that same year. <laughs> Isn't that wild? That it, Eisenhower's like our truly last great like bipartisan just like national icon yeah yeah there's no one we can re- you can really think of now who it's like would be so popular that like you would that both parties would try to get him to run i'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of ike <laughs> yes we, in fact and we can tell this story we don't live there anymore in our old apartment the the wi-fi password was i like ike <laughs> anyway uh back to eisenhower so after stints as president of columbia university and supreme commander of nato Ike would end up giving into the draft Eisenhower movement within the Republican Party in 1952, become that party's nominee for president. And in that election, he would defeat Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson II. He would also beat Stevenson in his bid for re-election again in 1956. Eisenhower was more or less a liberal Republican, which alienated him from the isolationist old-right Republicans like Ohio Senator Robert A. Taft, who he beat in that 52 convention, he pursued the new look foreign policy strategy, which saw him build up America's nuclear arsenal, negotiate an end to the Korean War by threatening to use nuclear weapons in Korea, and support <laughs> anti-leftist military coups in countries like Guatemala and Iran. He also persuaded the United Kingdom, France, and Israel to withdraw from an invasion of Egypt during the Suez Crisis, planned the Bay of Pigs invasion, and established NASA, kicking off U.S. efforts in the space race. Domestically, he continued most New Deal policies, including expanding Social Security, even though he was ostensibly a fiscal uh, conservative. He secretly opposed McCarthyism and established the interstate highway system. He also signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and enforced the integration of Arkansas schools via the National Guard. Despite being a military man, he coined the phrase military-industrial complex in his farewell address, where he warned against it, essentially, you know, this alliance between industry and military to basically cause as many wars as possible so that industry can keep selling arms to the military and then they will profit. Um, prescient. Very prescient, yes, this yes. guy. 
Ike served in a very exciting and prosperous time for the United States and is generally considered one of the better presidents out there. So popular, in fact, that his vice president, Richard M. Nixon, locked up the Republican nomination in 1960. And that's Eisenhower. That's all I got. True. <laughs> that's all true, Mike. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I suspect we'll unpack this quite a bit, but Eisenhower feels so above his time. Like, you kind of forget that McCarthyism was, like, most prevalent during his administration right mm-hmm. is eisenhower just feels like a larger than life figure i don't know we'll get into it we will yes yes he i, I think in a, in a very weird way like one thing i think we forget is that no matter how popular today someone like george washington or abraham lincoln might be back then very political figures right like yeah. washington certainly very admired in his time but there were still a lot of people who didn't like him and I'm sure there were, there were lots of people who did not like Eisenhower, but it seems like on the whole, he was as close as we came to like a post-legacy building Washington or Lincoln we had like walking on Earth, right? Like people just really, really liked him. Anyway, so we've got two movies to talk about this episode. Lars, what's the, what's the first one we're going to talk about? <laughs> yeah, so the movie that I picked was 1958's The Blob. <laughs> it was directed... By Irvin Yeworth Jr., and it stars Steve McQueen as a teenager, even though he's 28 at the time, and, and he looks 40. like he's 40. <laughs> who, you know, he's out with his best girl Jane, who's played by Annette Carsat, and basically they discover um, this man whose arm has been covered by a red blobish substance. <laughs> And they take him to the doctor, and then all of a sudden the doctor touches the substance, and then the blob becomes this issue that's eating the whole town, but none of the parents or adults believe the 28-year-old teenager Steve McQueen and his girlfriend and the weird ragtag other way-too-old teenagers they hang out with. Um, My favorite thing about this movie has got to be the first two minutes, because it starts with this, like, very light, tropical, like, beach party music i love Uh, it (laughs) i was like super vibing it man um it's like this song called the blob by this band that may actually just be one guy called the five blobs and apparently it was a national hit this was like a top 40 it was written by burt Bacharach. yeah it's like a big deal like he was like one of the premier songwriters of the 1960s right just truly truly ridiculous so that is the film I chose. I had never seen it. Mike, did you like it? Um, Yeah, I liked it for what it was. It, it is funny. Like, that thing began, I was like, oh, this is, like, way more tongue-in-cheek than I was going to expect it to be. Right. right. And, yeah, I don't know. So this movie, obviously, not not a high point in <laughs> acting, I would say. Oh, God, it's awful. Um, it's atrocious. Not, not, not a terrifically paced film, either. It's not very long, though. It's not. No, no. It, I, I enjoyed it in general. It's a, it's a movie people should see at least once, I think, right? It's so like, famous, right? Everyone knows about The Blob, but it yeah. feels like no one actually went and saw The Blob. And, like, The Blob effects, like, pretty impressive, I would say. Yeah. It's a very colorful movie, which I it was is. surprised by. Yeah. And it's also, I don't know, it's just funny because it's just, like, you should watch it because you're like, oh, people, like, really lived like this or at least thought of themselves living like this in the 1950s in a way. Like, it's this very, like, small-town America where all the guys are, like, super into their cars, and they go to, like, these midnight horror movies, 
and all the girls are trying to look like Marilyn Monroe. Like, I don't know. It, it seems like it'd be like an over-the-top parody of the 1950s, but it's actually from the 1950s, so there's something sort of, like, kind of authentic about that. I don't know. It's just, like, an interesting anthropological study in that vein. But both of the films, I, I won't spoil the one you chose, but both of the films we chose reminded me of two very different Back to the Future movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I guess, yes. You know what I, I mean? I assume this is the first one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so where 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 do we start connecting this film to Eisenhower? So I, I think the most the most obvious relationship, though the director asserts it is not true, is as like the red scare, right? Sure. <laughs> did you notice, Mike, that the blob is in fact red? <laughs> I did. It it looks like strawberry jam. It does. So I, I think the movie kind of starts the blob is like an alien. You see it crash to Earth, and the, everyone kind of notices this asteroid, and Steve McQueen is the only one who cares enough to go look, other than the farmer who gets it on his hand. And, you know, Steve McQueen kind of rolls up, finds this guy, like, wailing across the street with something on his arm. Um, and, you know, very small town. He lets him in the car to, to help, take him to the town doctor that everyone knows. And then they do that, and then there's teenagers who are racing around in their cars, they joke around with the the police officers. <laughs> and there's kind of like a lot of stuff like that, even as the film gets even, sorry, even as the blob gets more serious, it's like there's several scenes in a movie theater and like Steve McQueen kind of runs in to get some help from his sort of friends. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, wait, sorry, I mean, when he, when he goes to get that help and it's like, he brings them all out. And he's like, there's this, he's trying to explain what happens. Everyone's yeah. laughing. The one guy's like, takes him, like, no, shut up. Like, this is serious. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> but he, he's like in this theater and there's like an old timer sitting in the theater and he just wants to be left alone to yeah. watch his like stupid movie or whatever. And they're all talking in the middle of the theater. So I, I, I'm with him on that. And the movie's um, like, I don't know. It's not exactly this, but it's basically like I married Dracula or something like that. <laughs> it's some like weird, very cheesy. They call it a spook show. I was reading it used to be the 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 b movie showed that's right that's what i'm thinking of it was with the dracula movie right out yes it it was the b film uh like as part of a double feature with i married a monster from outer space yes which should tell you the kind of like uh intended quality it ended up the blob ended up being like way more popular so it became the like uh main feature but i don't know there's kind of like elements of all that kind of layered throughout it's like at, at one point a siren goes off in the town. It's because like Steve McQueen has like assembled everyone to kind of go on like a crazy rant about the blob. I don't remember if it's the dad or just like some town guy who's just like, oh my god, an air raid! <laughs> it's not. It's just some like old guy. He's like, it's an air raid, and then he runs to the closet so he takes out like his like military <laughs> helmet. But then he hears the fire truck going. He goes, no, it's a fire. And then he starts right. looking for a fire helmet instead. Right. So, so there is this kind of like, you know, it could happen in your small town kind of vibe that kind of reminded me of, uh, not that this is a particularly good movie either, but like Red Dawn feels like the same kind of movie 30 years later, um, which is about a group of kids who kind of have to like fight off Cuban Soviet invaders in Colorado. Not a good movie. I, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the, the theme is that no one takes the kids seriously, right? Yes, yes, that, that yes. That throughout the movie, no one listens to these children who are actually like forty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, there's literally a scene of like they go to a like a like a swinging party downtown, and it's all these drunk adults being like, "Oh, it's Paul Revere. He's telling us the, uh, <laughs> right. the British are coming." Right. And and so is the read on that that youth culture 
it's something like you know you, you've had the eisenhower years it's like a new year america's kind of in this new era you know the suburbs are a thing and, and like you know the old people they just don't get it um and eisenhower is kind of one of those old people right you know I, the eisenhower response if the town alarm would go off would be like oh my god well we have to get the military and figure this out for the good of the world <laughs> i don't disagree so here's what i was thinking when i was watching this movie so we see the the asteroid that carries the blob smacks down on earth right yeah. and we see the old man go encounter for the first time what is the most distinctive feature that this old man has <laughs> he has like crazy white hair sticking up all over the place and right. what does he do he pokes this this spherical thing with a stick and then it splits open mm. and so i kind of read this as like einstein splitting the atom and in a way the blob as like the military industrial complex or um, the specter of nuclear war or something like that. Oh, I, I like that. And I viewed... So there's one character. There's, there's like, a couple, like, policeman characters in this movie. There's the one who... They just call him by his first name. It's, like, Dan. Or, I, don't, I actually don't know what his first name is. But he's, like, the friendly, the nice policeman. And then there's, like, the very... Um, there's, like, the sergeant or whatever. And he's, like, there's kind sergeant of... Sergeant Jim and then there's Lieutenant Dave. I, I, so I don't know. I don't know which is, which, which is good, which is bad. But basically, yeah. one of them is is kind of like a hard ass and he is it's is a world war ii veteran he's like ah these kids they're just jealous of my war record right so eventually it gets to a point where steve mcqueen his girlfriend his girlfriend's kid brother they they get in they lure the blob basically to this like diner and the blob engulfs the diner and they're like oh hey why don't we get the guy who is like a world war ii hero to shoot the power lines the power lines will fall on the blob and electrocute it to death <laughs> it was a good as good an idea of any um and it doesn't work actually and it and what, what what i found so interesting about this movie is that there's there's like when, when they're running into the diner like the kid this dumb kid is shooting his like toy gun at the blob and so there's just this like idea that there's like generation of people who are like very primed for war and almost like kind mm. of chomping at the bit to go at it again with an enemy but that's that's not the way it's gonna work and the, the great so the, the way i i love towards the end of this movie where it's like <laughs> everyone realizes the problem is a problem they've got it like trapped kind of at this diner and eventually one of the policemen comes up to the other and is like i've got washington on the line like he just <laughs> calls up some you know the pentagon i guess i don't know and so the guy's on like a phone with somebody in washington and he's explaining what's happening and then he pauses for a little and goes no, no, that'll never work. And then moves on to something else. <laughs> never say what it is. But they actually say, like, because Washington wants to drop a bomb on it. And it's like, no, then it'll just, you know, blow up and it'll go all over the place and there'll be multiple multiple blobs then. And basically what ends up happening is they, they, they find out that Coles, the Cold War, ends up beating back this encroaching blob. And they, they, they subdue it enough so that it gets dropped off in the Arctic and the cop is like, ah, oh, hopefully we'll be safe there. And Steve McQueen goes, yeah, as long as the Arctic is cold, which, surprise, <laughs> may not, it's not, it's no longer a given, unfortunately. Yeah. My point is basically, it's like, I, I actually didn't read the blob as like communism or whatever. I read it more as like, yeah, the, the specter of nuclear war. And you have basically these kids, maybe, you know, in, in certainly in a decade when opposition to nuclear weapons becomes more widespread. You know, it, it's it's kind of this idea of like, hey, there's something like weird going on here. And the old generation who's kind of high off of the glory and the pain of World War Two is kind of ignoring them. 
I like that read. I think the thing that draws me to the Red Scare allegory more is just because the fact that the kids have constantly been warning the adults is like basically the only like through line through this movie. Right. Um, and it's like, you can only trust what you saw with your own eyes. No one, no one believes me or takes this serious. Seriously. There's this red thing hiding in our town. And kind of the climax of the movie is Steve McQueen gets the whole town down to the, the general store or whatever it is. And they're all like, why on earth did you wake us all up? And he's like, I had to make all this noise so you'd understand. And they're like, well, we didn't see anything. You're making this up. It creeps. It crawls. Like <laughs> co- it needs to be contained, yeah. like communism. <laughs> well, so that's interesting, though. Is the blob communism or is it the Red Scare? Right? Because I, I would think that it would make more sense if the kid was telling these others, like, "Hey, there's like this witch hunt going on." I also, for a class, I have to read a book about the Red Scare right now, so it's kind of on my mind. But it's like. You know, there's this witch hunt going on. We have to do something about it. And it's going to, like, eventually find its way into everything. They're like, ah, no. Did you notice towards the end of the movie when the blob is taking over things? The blob, (laughs) there's several shots, one of which looks very bad. But, like, the blob, the reds, literally, like, take over a theater. Like, kind of showing taking over the media. But Um, the Red Scare also did take over Hollywood. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, then I don't have anything else on the blob. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. Other than we can confirm that it creeps and it crawls. (laughs) It does. Check out the song if you're not going to check out the movie. It's uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, All right. Should we move on to my choice? Sure. So I went with Shane, directed by George Stevens, written by A.B. Guthrie Jr. and Jack Scher, based on the novel the same name by Jack Schaefer, and starring Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, Van Heflin, Brandon DeWilde, and Walter Jack Palance, soon to just be known as Jack Palance. Shane is a Western. It is about this community in Wyoming, I believe. And there's a lot of tension between the homesteaders who have, you know, built homes and these ranchers who claim they own the rights to the homes that the homesteaders are building farms at. And they want to run their their livestock through these their homes. And Shane is this mysterious figure who just is kind of riding through town one day not even he just shows up at their ranch yeah yeah just one person's house yeah and they just like give him some water they give him something to eat he helps the dad joe starrett he helps him hack away at a stump and ends up becoming kind of like a hired hand there and it turns out he also has kind of like a gunfighting past and so he's also kind of used to scare away these uh very violent ranchers and eventually things escalate to a point where the ranchers bring in their own hired gun and there is some bloodshed uh, that leads to a climactic confrontation between Shane and the rancher's hired gun. I had seen this movie before, Lars, you had not. What did you think of Shane? Yeah, it's uh, it's very good. Um, mm-hmm. Other than one very <laughs> annoying child. Yes. Like the worst fucking child. His name is yes. Joey, and I hate him. <laughs> yes. It, it, so, this, this, so I had assumed this would be the case when I was watching this movie for the first time, I looked up and did confirm it. So the book is like told purely through like the kid's perspective. Yeah. And they kind of try and do a similar thing. And it's Uh, very annoying. Yes. He's, he sucks. He's just (laughs) the worst. He's also obsessed with Shane. Well, everybody's everybody. Right. I I want like, everybody wants to like sleep with Shane in this movie. So (laughs) I am getting there. Um, But let's do that now. There is like a pretty, um, intense homosexual read on this movie. 
Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah. When, when they're, cho- when the, they're chopping. The dad's into him. The mom's yeah. into him. The kid's definitely into him. When, when they're, like, like, hacking away at that stump, it's this, like, and they're both, like, take their shirt off, and there's, like, these muscly dudes, sweaty dudes, working right. together to hack away at this tree stump. And, and like, the cowboy who's, like, he's, like, they ca- they keep calling him, like, a jumpy cowboy, and they're like, what are you so worried about in your past? Um, and he just, like, never likes to talk about it. I was reading Roger Ebert's review on it, and he just, like, straight up says it. He's, like, they're, <laughs> like, a very, because he, like, Shane also dresses very differently than everyone in the town. That's Roger true. Roger Ebert describes it as, like, sissy clothes. He it, just kind it of it, absorbs insults and punishment. And it, it's a very late 20th century gay figure is kind of how it seems. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely that read. I don't know if it has a lot to do with Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> so the way I, I saw this connecting to Eisenhower is that Shane, he rides in and immediately they kind of frame Shane as just like this, like essentially God amongst men. Right. Mm. And I think there's sort of like this great man rides into town He's going to solve all the town's problems. He's kind of a, a deliverance in a way. And, and I, I, to me, that like that reads to me, you know, I wasn't alive in the 50s, but that, 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 that reads right to me for like how the American populace may have looked up to Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, he has the admiration of pretty much everybody. Like the kids, the kid wants to be him, you know, this whole thing. But, you know, I do think there's also this thing where for as, as, as much as like Eisenhower did expand the American nuclear arsenal and and did get the CIA involved in lots of foreign affairs, what 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 really set him and MacArthur apart was like MacArthur wanted to invade China, like that's why he was relieved of his duty by Truman, and that's why Truman was so scared of MacArthur, MacArthur in 1948, right? Whereas Eisenhower was like, no, like that's stupid, like we can't do that, and a lot of people in the town are are pretty agitated about what's going on with the ranchers and some of them want to run away. And some of them are like, we, we, we got to like fuck these guys up basically. And Shane's like, look, I've been there. I am a former gunfighter. I've seen this stuff. I know what it's like. You people cannot handle this. I can handle this. Let me do the work. That's how I, I've always kind of read Eisenhower. Right. Where he's like, look, I have seen war. I have been in war. I've seen some things. People like Taft, people like Goldwater, all these like arch conservatives who want us to, like, you know, do tactical nuclear strikes in Asia, they do not know what they're talking about because they have not been there. I have been there. I know the cost of these things. So just, like, let me handle it, and we'll be okay. I like that read. There's also, kind of early on, in in our Shane is, in your Shane is Eisenhower story, mm-hmm. they, they do sort of say, like, don't get to liking him too much. He will have to go one day, yeah. which is, I, I mean, to kind of go back earlier is very like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, right? It's like eventually these guys were great, but they got to go. I also One. think Eisenhower, I believe, would have been the first person that the two term limit was applied to. I think Truman would have been grandfathered in. Yes, that is true. Yeah. I, I would also like what, what, what always strikes me about this movie, the twice, two times I've watched it, is the way it handles violence. Like it could very easily make a lot of the more violent scenes like seem heroic or something like that. But it doesn't like it gives a real weight to the violence. It's very gritty. It is like like Shane teaches Joey how to shoot. And when he pulls out, he's going to shoot at a rock. Like, it's not like, oh, he just shoots a rock. It's like it is loud and like startling and it freaks the mom out. And then there's like that that like great bar fight scene. Shane just like throwing like his fists all over the place. It, it feels almost like something they would do in like the 60s. Like remind me of like Bonnie and Clyde, like the, the kids watching this whole time while he's like eating like a peppermint stick. They, they cut together like 
Shane's fist snapping a dude in the face with the kid chomping down on the, the peppermint stick. So like the, the smack of his fist and the snap of the stick like happen simultaneously. It's just it's very good. There's just a lot of gung ho people in the 1950s about, you know, the Reds. And Eisenhower's like, yeah, it's a problem. I get it. But like, let's not get ahead of ourselves right now. Shame. It's also a, kind of a good movie about like the social contract after the war. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like the only way all these people are able to work to like get the job done is kind of together. And they're all like, you can't, if you leave, then we have to leave. So please don't leave. Yeah. It's like the community versus like a might is right mindset. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's weird. <laughs> the bad guys in this movie are all anti-South. They're all like, northerners. yes, it, it is very weird. I, I thought that was an interesting wrinkle that kept coming up. So I eventually jotted it down. It's like, huh? Yeah. Everyone else seems to have aligned with the Confederates in this. Movie. Yeah, well, it, it's what. Well, yeah, one, one of one of the homesteaders is like a Confederate veteran. Like he literally has like a CSA belt buckle and yeah. he's like the most feisty. And what happens is he goes into town with the Swedish guy. And, and the, the, the like the, you can tell he's a bad guy because he wears all black that the ranchers hire like provokes this guy by insulting like Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and then shoots him dead. And then when Shane comes to, like, avenge him, he's like, well, I heard from a friend that you're a no-good Yankee liar. And it's like, it's weird that, like, you're... I get that you're sad your friend died, but it's weird that they, like, chose it, like, oh, how dare he insult the good name of Robert E. Lee. <laughs> right. But I, I would also say that, like, yeah, and it's also, you know, I think, like, the homesteaders is, like, building up suburbia, right? This sort of, like, modernization idea. But then also, in an odd way, and this this, this movie would come out three years before the federal aid highway act but like the the highways bulldozed a lot of communities and that's the the ranchers kind of like trampling over people's homes reminding me of that as well there's a a line in this movie that there's like a part where they're talking about the the bad guys are like why they believe they're right mm-hmm. and it's like this lane belongs to us like because we put in all the work and mm-hmm. you guys aren't doing anything i don't remember who replies to them but it's like well actually the Native Americans did all the work on this land. I thought it was yeah. like a weirdly very woke line. And it kind of, it reminded me like right off the bat, it was like Obama's like, which is, you know, thought of as like a, it was like a gaffe. It's like Obama's like, you didn't build that. Yeah. Um, and then I remember like the backlash to that. And then the backlash to the backlash was like, Obama's totally right, by the way. Mm-hmm. You would never have any of this stuff without government subsidies. And <laughs> I mean, he literally bailed out your entire economy if you were in a certain industry. So it did kind of remind me of that. It's like the, the ranchers think that they have this like right to this land that these other people have settled on and legally have the right to, but the people who settled on it realize that they're building up from what was built before them and so on. And so- yeah, it is a movie that is like pretty opposed to the idea of like rugged individualism. I would say. Mm. I mean, it's all about how it literally takes a village. <laughs> yeah, it is, and there's uh, and there's, Shane and Eisen. Yes, and Shane. And this is yeah, this is a line that it's from a, a private letter that Eisenhower wrote. And so Eisenhower was considered a fiscal conservative, right? He was like, I want to fight the commies and I want to, you know, sort of like rein in spending. But like I said, he expanded Social Security, basically built highway. He spent a lot of money and didn't really deviate a lot from the New Deal. And he said in a private letter, should any party attempt to abolish Social Security and eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There's a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Their number is negligible and they are stupid. And, and I, I kind of feel like that, there, you know, there's an element of that in Shane. Yeah. Uh, unless you have any more, I have a closing question for you on Shane. So I was looking up 
if there was any like direct research or papers on Shane and Eisenhower. And I stumbled on something from the Eisenhower Library, uh, which is a great place, by the way, in Abilene, Kansas. Uh, highly recommended if you are in the middle of nowhere. It's actually like really, really good. It's like my favorite place on earth. I love that museum. But in their online archive, I found something, a documentation of the summit in 1959 with Khrushchev at Camp David. Mm. Um, and there was like a movie list in like, here are the movies that will be screened on the various nights. And there's about 10 movies. And on that list, there's Shane, High Noon, Gunfight at the OK Corral, Rio Bravo, Big Country, and then some others like Rear Window. So the 50s are like a big decade for Westerns. And it seems like this is 59. So Eisenhower obviously using a popular film medium to mm-hmm. stir Soviet interests or whatever. What? Why are Westerns so big in the 50s, which is kind of, you know, the decade of Eisenhower? That's a good question. I don't know that I have a good answer to it. I, I think it's America on the move, right? That's when America was on the move. Now we're on the move again, right? You know, we, we were mired in war. We were mired in depression. But now we're, we're expanding again. We're adding two more states to the union, becoming pioneers, perhaps not of the land, but certainly of the mind and of, of, of industry. I, I think that's all true. I remember learning in a film class at some point that it was kind of like uh, a lamenting the simpler times. It's like yeah. the world all of a sudden became just like way too much too fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and Westerns were kind of like a fallback, both from a production standpoint, is they're actually incredibly cheap to make compared to kind of like the big budget movies of uh, the time that would follow. But also just, you know, they're about like, you know, put in your hard work, be a good person, support your community. Um, and then you have Westerns that come later in which you get like bad guy Westerns. It was like Clint Eastwood kind of is like this dark Western figure or the more modern westerns revisionist westerns as they call them right which is not so much about that but the 50s ones are pretty wholesome all across the board yeah john wayne and whatnot well it's it's interesting that they screened high noon at that summit because people there's a movie about mccarthyism yeah people people thought high noon was communist propaganda (laughs) like john wayne made a whole movie in response to it but the read on it is that it's anti-mccarthyism yeah, well, that, that's why people didn't like it. They, they thought that it was, like, insinuating that there was something wrong with what was going on in America. <laughs> and it was right, but but people thought that that made it, like, unpatriotic. President whose favorite movie is High Noon, Bill Clinton. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that That's all I've got on Shane. I think we did a good job kind of tying that up. Yeah, I think so. So that's Eisenhower, that's Shane, that's the Blob Lars. Any closing thoughts? Like, any... What, what can we glean about Eisenhower and his relation to the, the movie viewing public from these two movies? So I, I think I have two things I would draw. The, the first of which is, I think Eisenhower, I kind of alluded to this earlier, he's, he's kind of tough as a figure to like stick to stuff. And I, I talked about this in Truman too, how it's like things aren't quite polarized or nationalized to the point where everything kind of feels like it's about something. I think we've done a, better job with these than we did with the with our film selections for truman it's like you don't it's kind of like what i was saying you don't really think of mccarthyism as something that happened under eisenhower you think of mccarthyism as something that happened in the 50s that being said the similarity that i found between these two films and bear with me here it's kind of about white flight Mm. in that so in shane's case you know, this is this town that's kind of lamenting the loss of what it sees as good relations and less drinking. And they're talking about their soda pop. I mean, they mentioned soda pop. Shane tries to get a soda pop for the kid. 
And it's about literally being forced away from your home because of, you know, potential ruffians or what the town views as ruffians. The blob is a little less subtle about it and is about, like, getting scared out of your home by a blob. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, like, you know, the town is, like, unwilling to be like, oh, that could never, you know, that's not a thing here. It's like, no, you got to, like, you got to get up in arms. This is this is crazy. We need to take to the streets and, like, you know, deal with the situation. White flight, of course, is, uh, for those who don't know, was the term used to describe kind of the white exodus from urban centers in the 50s and the 60s as African-Americans moved in uh, the cities and especially migrated from the south. Um, and this, of course, led to suburbanation as whites kind of fled city centers. I mean, Detroit. It just think about what happened to Detroit. That's like white flight. Right. And it was happening at this time. And these both of these movies are kind of about something like that. Mm-hmm. They are being about sort of being forced out of your home. Yeah, well, so I, I didn't really mention this about Eisenhower, but he was the first Republican to be elected president since 1928, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But I think we underestimate how much the world changed between like 1932 and 1952 in that, you know, there were like literal parts of the country that before the New Deal did not have electricity. And then you have this massive nationwide initiative to basically modernize the country. I mean, the military goes through a huge modernization effort. I mean, televisions are still expensive, but they're now cheaper. Same thing with, like, the automobile. So, to me, yeah, it's, it, it, this, these kind of highlight the, the changes going on. It's modernization, in my mind, right? And I think yeah. of Eisenhower as, like, a very forward-thinking modernist president. Um, I, I agree, even though he's, I mean, I mean, he's basically retired when he runs for president, right? Yeah. But he is like, I mean, he's, he definitely sees, the, he knows the highways are going to be good. He knows that, you know, desegregation is going to be good. He's ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff, is I guess what I'm going going for. He is, yeah. And and, and very resistant to like, it. so in, uh, I think I alluded to this earlier, but I, I read a book about Barry Goldwater a few months ago. They talk about how they tried to get Eisenhower's endorsement for Barry Goldwater and like he was just like yeah sure like like he clearly like not enthusiastic at all but how like they filmed this like very long tv ad at the eisenhower ranch in gettysburg with and just like a conversation between him and goldwater and eisenhower could not be like less interested in goldwater throughout the entire thing and just like there's this like weird like reluctance and this acknowledged there was like look this like reactionary stuff that's going on like it's not smart it's stupid like he said like and this is just, like, not worth my time anymore. You people are actually kind of beneath me in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I've I think that's all I've got. I think that's all I got. And if that's the case, then that's all you're going to hear, everybody who's listening. <laughs> uh, we hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is available basically everywhere you can hear podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, also on the postwriter.com, where you can find things we have written, other podcasts Lars and I have participated in. But for now... I've been Mike Levito. And I'm Lars Emerson. You can find me on thepostwriter.com like we talked about or on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. Yes, and I'm on the Letterboxd as Adam Aramike and Twitter as at MLevito. And yeah, join us next week while we discuss the films of the John F. Kennedy era. Not that we've got a lot of time to work with on that one, unfortunately. Well, he's got more time than Ford. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody.